Today we continue our walk through 1 Corinthians. And I have to confess to you, as I was uh, telling those who, uh, who were in our Next Steps class during Sunday school, that uh, this is an example of a passage that if I were not committed to expository preaching, which is just exposing what is here, and if I were not committed to the practice of walking through uh, whole books of the Bible, a verse or a section at a time, trying to expose what is in the Bible, this is a passage, and these are actually two or three chapters that I might be tempted to skip. Uh, so we, we had a conversation about this last week. Uh, but the reality is what we're dealing with is sexual immorality inside of the church. Now there's a couple important things to note about what I just said. Sexual immorality inside of the church. And that is this, that uh, we evangelicals seem to have a reputation for being all kinds of upset about the sexual immorality that is outside of the church. And we seem to have a very clear, uh, you know, posture toward that. Uh, sometimes it's, it's right and it, and it hits the mark and sometimes it's uh, not altogether helpful. But the reality is that in the year of 2024, we need to be very concerned first about what exists within our own body and within our own fellowship, and even within our own hearts. And so, as we look at 1 Corinthians 5, we are not primarily here to gripe about how the world is going to heck in a handbasket. We are here primarily to examine ourselves. We are the church folks here trying to do an honest look in the mirror, right? This is uncomfortable for me. I hope it won't be uncomfortable for you. I hope not to make it any more uncomfortable than it has to be. But here's what we can approach this passage of the Bible knowing. Everything in the Bible is good for us. Amen? And everything in the Bible is here for our flourishing. Right? God is not telling us hard things so that our lives will be worse. Whenever God tells us hard things, it's so that our life can be better. Amen? Can we believe that about God? That he's a good father. He's not hiding the ball. He's intending to give us life and life abundantly. Why do we need to talk about this? Why do we need to talk about this stuff? Well, first, and the only reason that we really need is very simple. We talk about it because the Bible talks about it. That's really the only reason that we need. The Bible gets to set the pace and the speed and the agenda. The Bible gets to determine what is important. That's number one reason. Number two, we have to be very honest. Sexual freedom is the idol of our day. Sexual permissiveness, identity, and freedom these are the idols of our day. I don't even think I really have to convince you of this. Right? I, mean, I mean, we are swimming in this water. And there are many sins that we could talk about, and the Bible addresses them as well, greed and gluttony and selfishness and pride and all other kinds of things. But as one person has very, I think, acutely pointed out, 
this sin area of sexual immorality is the only one in our culture that seems to have constitutional protections. It is an idol in our culture and in our time that has a a, a visceral power that is greater than most other things that can entrap us. And so it takes a a certain kind of eye to, to look toward it. Unless you think I'm just talking about the culture around us, friends, this very idea that the fact that, that, that sexual uh, um, permissiveness and, and sexual um, uh, sin is the idol of our day, this theme has very much crept into the church as well. We know from the outside culture that there are certain things you simply can't talk about. There are certain things you simply can no longer disagree about or your job may be in jeopardy. But what about inside the church? Which is the focus of this passage today. Around the church universe, we're we're faced with increasing pressures to bow or to cede ground, to surrender ground, or to look the other way among those that we've made covenant with, our fellow church members. This is why church membership is vitally important because it sets the boundary for who we have responsibility to love and to encourage and to care for and yes, even to hold accountable. To call a wayward brother or sister back to Christ is now perceived as judgmental. Because we simply don't interfere with the private lives of consenting adults. Sexual freedom is the one thing in our culture that you simply can't oppose out loud or you will run into a reaction that is so allergic that the only way that I know how to describe it is it is religious. You have attacked someone's God when you attack their view of sexual freedom. Friends, the reason that it feels this way is because I believe that's exactly what's happening. We are not talking about a sin problem. We are talking about an idol. We are talking about a competing religion of what really brings human fulfillment. What brings human fulfillment? Either it's Christ or it's something else. And right now, the something else that our culture has decided upon is sexual freedom. Number three, we must walk Christianly in this context, in this strange new world we find ourselves in. We must walk Christianly. This is the third reason why we must talk about these things. Is calling wayward brothers or sisters back to Christ, which I understand to simply be evangelism, is evangelism judgmental? Is beckoning folks to come back to Jesus now hateful? Is it within the church? Is it hateful and judgmental? Do we really have any responsibility or are we all just kind of walking around in our own little individual, compartmentalized, separated, disconnected Christian lives and we just need to leave well alone? Can I just take a moment here just to put down the shield and to take off the mask? I don't think of myself as wearing a mask, but that's just an image. Can I just just set down the shield and take off the mask and just be super gut level honest with you for a minute? speaking face-to-face, heart-to-heart with those that I've been called to shepherd. In the climate that we live in right now, I feel like I can't win. If I am faithful 
to set forward the truth. And if I have the temerity to get out of the pulpit and to say one-on-one what we're all very comfortable from saying behind the microphone, if I do that, then I open myself to charges of judgmentalism or charges of bigotry or even lost relationships or even, as has happened, I run into other Christians either going behind me and undercutting my efforts to plead with someone to return to Jesus. If I go the other direction and I completely ignore what the Bible says, then I'm not being faithful to the gospel and I'm just allowing people to continue to wander far from Christ with no faithful voice beckoning them to come back, reminding them that there's freedom. I feel like I can't win. This sermon is not about me and my internal struggle that I face, but I have to, I have to see that if I feel this way, I bet that those of you who are trying to live consistent Christian lives with your family members and with your co-workers and in your own life and in your own household, I bet you feel the same pressure too. So here's the only direction that I've come away from with, with Scripture. As I read Scripture, whether it's God calling Joshua to do crazy-sounding th- things to be obedient with God. Why, why do I need to walk around this city seven times? Is it the seventh time that's going to be the trick? Why are we blowing trumpets? God calls Joshua to do insane sounding things to be obedient to him and then God comes through. Abraham goes up on the mountain. God tells him to sacrifice his son. This doesn't seem like the character of God. This doesn't seem like what God would do. But then there's a substitute and God comes through. God provides a miracle All Abraham needs to do is be obedient and God will take care of the rest. Whether it's Paul here in 1 Corinthians telling the people, just trust the power of the gospel and leave the rest to me. Friends, the message is clear. Just obey God and let the chips fall where they may. That's what I hope to try to do. Here's the last reason. Here's the last reason. We need to be honest about the last reason that we need to talk about these things. The church has not done a good job of explaining a holistic, end-to-end, robust, full-throated understanding of the purpose of of the body. We have not developed a very good Christian anthropology or doctrine of the body, doctrine of human beings What are we here for? We've either ignored the issues or we've been really, really simplistic and said something like, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. We've never given any people any further explanation about what the Bible says about the body, what the Bible says about the body and the soul and how those two things come together. You're likely gonna hear a few things today, I hope you will, that you may have never heard before. I was telling our our friends in the Next Steps class, like as I'm going through that class, which by the way, huge victory, uh, I just recently put together uh, a list of all of the alumni of the Next Steps class and we're seeing more folks who are members go through it just because I pleaded with you to, you know, just drop in on us and go through it. Like we've had like 35 or 36 people in the last three and a half years go through this class. That's like over a quarter of who would be here on a Sunday morning. All right, this is a huge victory in my mind. Maybe not for you, but like in my heart. Like, hey, we're, as a percentage, we're growing. It's great. Join us on the next one, please. 
But as we're in there, we're talking about a few things. And, and I'm saying, listen, folks, I am sharing with you some things that I didn't hear until seminary. My church did not disciple me in some of the stuff that I'm sharing with you today. And so the only reason that I have, have been able to, to, to formulate a, kind of a view of, of gender, sexuality, and the human body is because, thankfully, I, I was blessed to, to come along in our, in our seminaries at a time when we had just incredible powerhouse thinkers who were putting out great resources and answering a lot of the questions that I remember my youth leaders just kind of shrugging and saying, I don't know, years ago. So friends, hopefully we'll see some things today that we haven't seen before and there will be a kind of logic in the Bible that will undergird why the Bible says what it does. Right? Would you pray with me? Lord, as we look to the Bible today, I am an imperfect messenger for this message. As Nathan said, all of us, in some way or another, all of us are sexually broken. We do not get through this life completely intact. All of our lives have been marred by the, by the fall into sin in Genesis 3. And so I come as a broken person speaking to broken people. And I pray that you would give me the resolve to say what is true. I pray that you would give me the wisdom to say it gently. I pray that I would not come across abrasively when I have to say a hard word, but I pray that at every turn we would see the hope of the gospel, that no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter how our brokenness has taken shape in our life, there is healing at the cross. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just two verses this morning, friends. We're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And our first point is this. Why is sexual immorality such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal after all? Read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. Let's remember older father figure, talking to church folks. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, here is the way that verses 1 and 2 serve us. They really are kind of a compact, condensed, uh, just-add-water version of everything else that comes later in chapter 5. And so if you want a summary, a good summary of everything that's in chapter 5, really you've got it in seed form right here in the first two verses. The first two verses talk about what's going on in the church and what they are to do about it. Oh, number one, our point is this. We ask the question, why is sexual immorality such a big deal?
deal? Well, first, let's define our terms. The, the Greek word for sexual immorality here is a very broad term, and it's the, the word porneia. Okay? It's a very broad term that covers all kinds of sexual sin, fornication, uh, lust even, uh, adultery. It would cover all of these things, and of course, as you can piece together, it's where we get a very uh, shorter word from, the first four letters there that we use in our culture. And so this term, when we see sexual immorality, we should understand it as kind of an end-to-end uh, covering all of our bases here. Nothing gets skipped. It would, it would cover uh, sins that are uh, you know, common among uh, those who are heterosexual and sins that are common to those who are homosexual. It would cover even the sins of the heart, lust, desires, things like that that are treated in James. I think one of the things that, the most important things really that we can do to get a clear picture of the Bible and of its teaching on this area is to realize something about what the body what the bible teaches about our bodies number 1 our bodies matter to god our bodies matter to god see the bible teaches very consistently even in the passage that emily just sang and read The Bible teaches that we have been purchased and not simply our souls, but also our bodies have been purchased. And God has a purpose not only for our souls, but for our bodies. You see, when Christ came, we were very comfortable talking about how he came to save our souls. But that's actually only part of the truth. God has come to redeem his entire creation. You know that when we bury folks out at the Edgewood Cemetery, one of the conversations that Brad at Latham's is always having is, now we we, we have to turn the casket the right way because in most every cemetery in America, the, the casket always faces east. And this is a symbol because it, it, it's reminding us of how when Christ returns in the east, right, the bodies will rise. Like, we have, simp- we have not simply been saved in our souls, but God is working to redeem even our bodies because we will be resurrected at the end of time one day. See, here's how this idea butts up against our culture. We have come to believe that the real us is the us on the inside. The intentions and the hearts and the desires, right? That's the real us, the love, right? And our bodies, we kind of separated our bodies from the real us so we can do with our bodies whatever we want to do. The real me is on the inside. And this is an understanding of humans that the Bible does not have. See, the Bible always holds soul and body together. The early church dealt with this in the first couple of centuries. There was this philosophy called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism believed that basically our bodies were like disposable cameras. You get so many snaps and at the end you get to throw it away. The real you is the spirit. And your spirit will go to heaven. But what the Bible consistently teaches us is that God is here to save all of us. 
So even the ways that your body is breaking down now because of the disease that you live with or because of, uh, of age and the troubles that you're facing, one day even your body will be renewed and it too will be saved by God for those who are in Christ. You see that? But if we have this Oreo cookie view of the body and the soul, like I can just kind of twist it off and the real me is the soul and, and I can do whatever I want to with the body, then we get, into this, we get into this rut where we believe that basically our body is ours to do with whatever we want to. But the body belongs to God. He's going to redeem it, just like our soul. Let me show you where this kind of turns up in our culture. Because we have believed that the soul can be separated from the body, we're a lot more comfortable than we used to be with the idea of fornication and the premarital cohabitation that comes along with it. We're a lot more comfortable with this because we've separated the soul from the body. Why is fornication okay? Because the me on the inside, I love them. That's the real me. My body is separate from me. I can do what I want to with my body. But the real me has love. It's good. It's good in here. We've separated the soul and the body, and because of that, we have, we have misunderstood what the gospel says about how God intends to save us. He intends to save all of us, soul and body, one day. It is actually reported Paul says, it is actually reported. Listen to the, how he addresses them. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. What he's saying here is he's saying your consciences have, have become so deadened to, to what you're doing that you don't even feel the prick anymore. And this gets into our second point. Idols always deaden the conscience. Idols always deaden the conscience. Paul is trying to wake them up to the fact that they've slipped a bit. They've been in this Corinthian culture, which is very difficult. I mean, it's hard to live in. It's, it's looking increasingly like the culture that we live in today. And he's saying, you have lived, you've swum in this water so long that you're starting not to notice that it's polluted. And you're starting to look like it yourselves your conscience has become deadened you've become a little desensitized friends this is the trick of the enemy is to deaden the conscience to tell that conscience to shut up it doesn't so that it doesn't bother me so that I can do what I want to do but friends the conscience is a gift from God it's been placed in your heart like like a like a your your pain senses you know that there's there's this disease called SEPA this was the subject of an episode of House one time, if you ever watched that. This is where I'll, I get all of my medical expertise, by, by the way. Congenital insensitivity to pain and anhydrosis, SEPA. It only occurs in one in 125 million people. It's incredibly rare. And what it does is it causes you not to be able to feel pain, Right? The average life expectancy for people with SEPA is 25 years old. And it's not because SEPA kills them. 
There's nothing about the disease, SEPA, that actually kills them. What happens is they go out to, uh, on the porch and they get a splinter in their heel and they can't feel it, right? And then, I don't know about you, but I don't examine the bottom of my feet very often, right? I know they're there, I put my socks and shoes on, but because they can't feel it, that splinter begins to fester and becomes gangrenous and infected. And then before they know it, their whole body is septic, Because they can't feel pain, they are led to an early death. Friends, the conscience works the same way. The conscience is this gift of God that's been placed into our hearts, and by it we can feel pain so that we know that there's a problem, so that we can go to the physician, so that we don't die an early death or a spiritual one, right? Friends, we spend so much of our lives trying to tell our conscience to shut up when it's the very thing that's trying to lead us closer to God. It's the very thing trying to drive us back to the cross. The the Puritans uh, got this right. They had this very uh, robust doctrine of the conscience. And they would say, don't turn it off. Let it drive you to Christ. Don't let it drive you into the gutter of despair and then leave you there. But let your conscience drive you to Christ. Why? Because there's freedom there. There's no freedom in a deadened conscience that's been anesthetized or whatever. We need to be wise to the schemes of the devil. He doesn't, here's the thing, Satan doesn't really care if one generation stays faithful, if he can just get the next generation to compromise just a little bit, right? If we can just move the, the, the Venn diagram just a little bit, and then, that, and, and then this generation believes, well, this is normal, and the next generation comes just two inches more, and the next generation just comes two inches more, and then next thing you know, we're getting a letter from Paul saying, it's actually reported that you guys are so far from home base, you don't even know where you're at. What happened in the Corinthian church is that their consciences had become so accustomed to everything around them that they themselves had come to compromise. Friends, when, here's why this is important in the church, right? This is a conversation for church people. When we make little compromises, we slowly sell off our ability to tell the world that the gospel actually brings change. We make little compromises one generation at a time and the next thing you know, it's the Corinthian church and you can't tell the difference between the church and everybody who's not. They've lost their witness. Here's the last point from verse number two. Mourn now, rejoice later. And you are arrogant, he says in verse two, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now that last part, very hard teaching. I don't have time to get into it today, but I will next week. So we'll unpack that next week. But right now, let's look at this. Ought you not rather to mourn? What he's saying here is that you guys have have shifted so far as a church from where you need to be that you no longer are able to weep over what you ought to weep over. You've lost the ability to cry. You've lost the ability to be sorrowful over sin.
my fear, church, is this. Is that like the church in Corinth, we too are proud. We don't mourn like we should. When we see so-and-so and and they don't even have a date set on the calendar for when they're going to get married, but they're off in Cabo or, you know, Punta Cana or the British Virgin Islands or whatever, and instead of sitting there in front of the computer screen mourning, we love React, all the photos. We've lost the ability to mourn. And we think that we're being loving. In this last verse, two things are contemplated. Mourning. Can I ask you a question? Why do you think it is that the Bible always talks about being sad now so that we can be happy later? You know, the Bible seems to do that all the time. Psalm 30, though weeping lasts for the night, joy comes in the morning, right? If you'll just weep now, there's joy that's coming, right? The Bible is always talking about this. Ecclesiastes 7 says that it's better to go into the house of mourning than into a house of feasting, right? I share that at funerals where the Bible basically says it's better to go to a funeral home than it is to a party, for 2 Corinthians 4 says this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen and even Jesus himself on the Sermon on the Mount said blessed are those who mourn present tense for they will be future tense comforted why is the Bible always trying to convince us that we should be sad now so that we can be happy later is this just like the marshmallow test? Have you seen that on YouTube or whatever where they set these marshmallows down in front of these little five-year-old kids and they, you know, they come in in the white coat and everything. It's like, a, it's like a scientific test and they set the marshmallow down and said, now listen, you can have the marshmallow. Or if you'll wait until I come back, you can have two. And they don't tell them how long it's going to be before they come back. They just leave the room. And the little kid is there like, you know, like, should I? It smells really good, you know. And, and some of them eat the marshmallow, and some of them wait. They delay gratification, and they get two marshmallows, right? And then they'll do it again. They'll say, hey, you can have these two marshmallows, or you can wait until I come back, and you'll, you can have four marshmallows, right? Is that what God's doing? Is he just running a test to try to figure out which Christians can delay gratification and which ones can't? I mean, that's not what he's doing. Instead, what, what God is doing is he's teaching us this, The gospel trains us for pleasures. The gospel trains us to live not for pleasures that are passing and temporary. See, the gospel trains you to be able to live for better pleasures that come through Christ. They're better, God provides them, and they are eternal. It's, it's, the mark of a, it's the mark of someone who has never experienced Jesus that they're just trying to get whatever this life can get for them. Right, their, their affections and their taste buds have never been trained for the world that is coming, but this is what the gospel does. The gospel says you can actually do without the Dollar General brand of, of pleasure now so that you can have the big and, and awesome real deal Lamborghini brand of pleasure later in Christ. The gospel trains our appetites and our affections for a better fulfillment that is to come. 
It's not that we're not supposed to enjoy our lives right now. That's, that's not the point. It's, it's rather that we aren't supposed to live for right now. And the gospel tells us that there is actually better fulfillment, not in the separating the body and the soul and living for ourselves now, but there's actually better fulfillment in Christ. He is the one who satisfies. 1 Corinthians 6 it says this, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know? This is the hope, by the way. Here's, here's the message of hope. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, there's pornea again, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And look what it says in verse 11. Paul writes this to the church folks, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, this is good news, that the church is not made up of people with perfect spotless pasts. The church is made up of people who have all kinds of checkered past, but they have been changed by Jesus. They've been refitted. We're not here because we're the good people. We're here because we're the bad people. And Jesus said that we're the bad people. And we say, okay, Jesus, I agree. I need to be good. And Jesus said, okay, I'll make you good. This is who we are. This is who the church is. We're not here because we qualify ourselves. We're here because Jesus lived the perfect life that we failed to live and he died the death that we deserve to die and he says, I will come and give you a better set of loves if you will just follow me. Friends, I run a, a really big risk sharing this sermon. I've prayed a lot this week about my tone and about my specific words and illustrations that I would use. I don't want to, if you, could, if you can imagine me with a baseball bat, I don't want to, as I'm trying to hit a sin, I don't want to hit people. You understand what I'm saying? As I'm aiming at a sin, and as I'm swinging at a sin, trying to convince you that that sin needs to die, I don't want to inadvertently hit somebody that's too close to me. There are those in this room all of us, who have some level of sexual sin in our past. 100% of the people in this room. And the last thing that I want to do is for me preaching or sharing this passage to heap up condemnation on you or to remind you of old bones that are, that are being dug up that cause you to think I could never walk with Jesus. I'm too far gone. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good news? There may be those who today are caught in some kind of sexual sin. Or maybe you used to be and you just thought that time could take care of it. You never really repented of it. You never really took it to the cemetery. You just kind of time and circumstances changed and you moved on. The message for you today is this. Look to the cross and be free. Jesus has left the door wide open for sinners like you and me. If you will simply return to him, repentance brings healing. 
Don't switch off your conscience. Let your conscience drive you to the cross where your conscience can then be cleansed. It's not too late. Jesus will receive you. If you have breath in your lungs and you hear the word of God and the word of God is doing a work in your heart, respond to it. The door has been swung wide open for people just like you and me at the cross. And this is very, very good news. No matter our past and no matter our present, Jesus is welcome, is ready to receive you. Let's pray together.